Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Uh, we are going to spend most of this episode answering your emails, which you always appreciate. Send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. But first, Bruce, I think we should probably address the elephant in the room, the big topic in our industry, the massive ESPN layoffs. Yeah, it's, you know what, it's pretty uh, kind of heartbreaking to see it. Yeah, I mean, look, and we're not we're not fools. We know that there's a lot of people in a lot of other industries who have fallen on hard times and got squeezed and layoffs and, and, or does don't have opportunities. Uh, this obviously, and we have respect for that, but this, this hits close to home because there's a lot of people we're very close to who have, uh, you know, kind of seen their lives and their families' lives kind of thrown into, into chaos. And just the way it happened, you know, that it was, you're watching it in real time on social media. This person is announcing it. I think the first person I saw uh, on Wednesday when we taped was Ed Werder, who'd been there for a long time, was kind of you know a stalwart for them on the NFL beat. And then you know Dana O'Neill, who's that was I think probably hit closer to home for you because she's you know her a lot better and she's a college basketball writer and really well respected in you know by everyone. So it was uh, and it just it deteriorated even from there. Yeah, it was like watching a day-long funeral. I mean, I've been in a daze ever since, and, and obviously I was not personally affected. Um, I think what surprised both of us, because there have been a lot of reporting leading up to this from people like Richard Deitch and Jim Miller who cover ESPN, and all indications were, yes, it was going to be bad. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. You don't want to see that. But it was going to be more like Sports Center anchors and, and analysts and then it happened, and, and and maybe that that there are still people like that, but I guess neither of us had any inkling, and I don't think these people that were affected did either. There was going to be so many college football and basketball writers for ESPN.com, and many of these people we see on the road, we have meals with, we're friends with. We, I mean, you mentioned Dana O'Neill. I covered NCAA tournaments with her, you know, going back almost ten years. Our friend Brett McMurphy, who. In yeah, my I mind, with, I worked with Brett. You worked with for, Brett. I've obviously know Brett well. You know, probably. I mean, I consider you and him to be basically the two preeminent newsbreakers in college football. He got let go. Brian Bennett, who's covered the Big Ten for them for a long time, uh, our friend Chantel Jennings, who's up in Oregon and covers the Pac-12. Uh, Max Olson, who covers the Big Twelve. You know. Yeah, the, it, like, you know, I just when the some of them, you know, Brett's on uh, is on Sports Center, And I think one of those is like, OK, it's a Sports Center thing. And I don't know where that fit. The Max Olson one to me was especially a head scratcher because I had seen him at, at uh, I sat next to him at the UT spring game a week ago. I think his you know, his uh, they had just moved into a new house they just bought. And he's a young, like very conscientious guy I thought he'd you know it's not like I read every piece every of the ESPN you know 40 college football bloggers or contributors do but I was like I thought he was one of the better people they had and he also covered you know he's at Texas it's not like Purdue is the team in his backyard uh, so it was a head scratcher and then for me the other one that especially hit close to home was Ted Miller who's you know he's one of my favorite people in the world uh, like you know, selfishly, I, I loved being on the, on the road when Ted was around. I mean, the best times I had uh, at a couple of game at a couple of game weekends were Ted was the was a big part of it. You know, just and, to just to 
give you an indication of how caught off guard some of these people were. Ted had just, they had just re-upped him, I want to say, earlier this year. Yeah, I talked to Ted the day before. I talked to Ted on Tuesday. I remember sitting in my car at like the Target parking lot and we were just kind of talking. And so, you know, and he, like all these people, he's really talented. And, and to me, like I always kind of joked and maybe I said it to you, I was like, if I ever ran like a college football department, Ted would be one of the first people I'd hire. Now I would hire him to let him write because I think he has a really good voice and as a writer and I think he has good temperament and everything else and he has perspective and I'm not sure that's not entirely the the stuff he was doing there because of you know the you know let's let's be honest also they had 40 college football writers so you could easily make the case they were pretty bloated and they had a lot of overlap but just you know you hire all these people and I think that gets into the economics of of why this happened and I think there's a lot of misinformation that was out there about what happened. And I know from seeing some of your tweets and some of your, you know, responses to some people, uh, it was, it was kind of bizarre to see some of this, like everyone tried to, not everyone, lots of people tried to pull this into politics where I think they were either overthinking it or just, you know, like just being ignorant for the sake of being ignorant and trying to, trying to, uh, kind of throw it back in people's faces for some political gain, which was kind of, which is kind of well, stupid. One thing I learned for sure on Twitter yesterday, if it's any representation is that a whole lot of people are, are turned off by what they perceive to be uh, left leaning liberal political views or social justice views that have been creeping into ESPN's coverage. And okay, to be clear, like we're here on a Fox sports podcast. We're not going to sit here and critique ESPN's programming. But I do think it's important to talk about the business model because it affects all of the content that you consume. It affects us, obviously. So in a nutshell, this is why ESPN is in the situation they are in and why all these people lost their jobs yesterday. Uh, ESPN's revenue comes overwhelmingly from subscriber fees. Their subscriber fee. So so any so if you're, you're a cable subscriber. Whether or not you watch ESPN, ESPN is getting $7 a month, I believe, or a little bit more than that from you. Uh, and, and as is every channel, I mean, every channel on your cable package is getting some fee, but in many cases it's five cents or 10 cents. Right. ESPN is overwhelmingly the highest subscriber fee because they have the live events that people want to see. And over the last decade or more, there was a huge explosion in the cost of those rights fees, in part because competitors like FS1 and, and uh, NBC Sports came on the scene and suddenly they had competition for these bids. So, I mean... They spend $7 billion to televise the college football playoff. They spend way more than that for Monday Night Football or the NBA. And so all their costs kept going up, and suddenly cord cutting became a huge thing. They've lost 10 million subscribers in the last six years. So, so you know, somebody who's better at math can do the math for that. 10 million times $7 a month all year long. That's how much revenue they're losing. So when a business loses revenue, they have to cut costs, but they couldn't cut their single biggest cost, which is these contracts with the leagues because they're locked in for a long time. So they had to cut employees. And they had to show Disney that they were being proactive. I think that was, you know, a a big piece in this. So they're, you know, the, the rights issues is enormous. The NBA deal is a humongous deal. 
the NFL package they have doesn't seem, you know, they're paying, I think they're paying even more than Fox does and they have way worse games. They don't get good games on Monday night. They don't have the potential to get Super Bowls. They're paying a fortune for it. So, and a lot of these, you know, yeah, a lot of these uh, events, you know, these are some of the most watched events in sports and they're not, and they're losing money on them because right, of how much like, they cost. But like you pointed out for these people who are like, I won't watch ESPN. And if you say to them, do you have cable? They don't quite kind of get where the disconnect is with their own argument. Yeah. If somebody says I'm turned off by ESPN's political view, so I stopped watching it. My next question would be, and I know a lot of people who did the same thing. Well, my next question would be, did you did you just stop, stop watching, watching it or did you it. cut cable entirely? This is really about and this happens, you know, in a lot of industries, right, where technology disrupts the industry and renders something behind the times or out of date. I mean, the cable bundle model has been the only model that for since the dawn of cable. And now people are saying, I'm not going to pay 150 bucks a month for cable anymore when I because I don't watch most of these channels. Um, especially younger people. I mean, I still have cable. You still have cable. But everybody I know who's 25 or under, not everybody, but a lot of people I know have never had cable. It's not even part of their, you know, thought process. Like, I, I'm going to get an apartment and I got to call the cable company. No, they, they watch everything on their phone and on their devices. And although I've always not quite understood how you could be a big college football fan and not have cable because everything is on ESPN seemingly right. or FS1, or or other channels um i don't know people go to sports bars they go to their friends houses there are now many over the top like sling tv you can get espn that way so that's the economics of it it really has nothing to do or or very little to do with programming or certainly politics um now the next point though is all right so they had to cut costs or disney told them to cut costs they looked at their roster of talent and they said who do we consider to be the most expendable and why this is such a hard day for you and me and for anybody in our industry is at least not all the names have come out yet as of us recording this, but at this point they are overwhelmingly reporters. So they could have cut any number of ways and they decided to, to make a massive reduction in the people who write and report and go on the air and report the news. You mentioned Ed Werder, right? He's a, I mean, one of the best NFL insiders out there there is. Andy Katz, who I've known for a long time, great college basketball reporter. Brett, we mentioned before. You know, these are the people who give you the information, not the people who uh, sit at a table and debate. It's a, obviously an extremely troubling message that was sent yesterday. It was, and I think that you know people look at this again and – you know, I, I really hated some of the stuff of the, oh, this is, you know, this is left leaning or whatever. And it's like you look at some of the people who got let go, um, you know, they're all over the political spectrum personally, but none of them are. You know, this wasn't anything about that. And because of the because of the economics of the of their business model as it was, by the way, uh, if it was because people didn't like the politics, uh, our own place, Fox Sports last year had pretty massive layoffs, especially relative, you know, did we have a hundred people laid off? No, not that many, but we're also way smaller workforce than ESPN had. And you'd certainly, you know, no one ever accused, as far as I know, Fox sports of being left leaning. If anything, the Fox brand, 
Uh, and some of the people who commented certainly don't don't seem to be on that side of it. So well, I don't have any evidence to to back this up. But if you're somebody who is um, conservative and is passionate enough passionate enough about that to be really ticked off when they see what they consider to be liberal politics on ESPN, I gotta think there's a high overlap between that segment of the population and people who watch Fox News. And if you've watched Fox News, you still have cable. And if you still have cable, ESPN is still making money from you. So, um, I, yeah, I don't want to belabor that point too much. Um, I mean, how- going forward, one of the things that I, I think, and, and look, this affects you and I both because we're in the same industry, is, and this is the part where you're, you want to be optimistic for your friends and the people who are, you know, looking looking around, Um you know, what's next? And the, the media climate is, you know, is challenging. You know, it really is because certainly if you cover college football, there's not a lot of places that do college football. You know, there's certainly, I mean, it's basically if you do TV and I've thought of this from my own, you know, perspective, there's basically three places that have some, you know, sizable TV footprint, ESPN, Fox, and CBS. I mean, you know, NBC really doesn't unless you're going to go do Notre Dame and then that's it. You know, like your old employer, Sports Illustrated, has, has obviously seen, you know, sizable layoffs over the years. Um, you know, we have guys we, we, we were friendly with who worked at Bleacher Report. Some of those got laid off this week. Every winter. single media entity you can think of has, has done layoffs sometime recently, if not more, um, because ESPN of the changes in this industry. Be, yeah, and I mean, I worked there for you know 17 years. ESPN used to be the place that, you know, the only thing that didn't work well at ESPN was the was the phone that they <laughs> tried to you know make that business work. Well, Everything and I would else. just add, it happened this this turnaround happened so quickly. I mean, it was only probably three years ago, four years ago maybe, that the 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 media the big media story was that in this age of DVR and TiVo where you can skip through commercials and people don't feel like they have to watch um, Breaking Bad in real time, the one thing that you really do still watch live and can't skip the commercials is sports. And because of that, ESPN has all these sports properties. So, you know, at one point, not that long ago, they were considered the crown jewel of Disney's portfolio. Now they're considered a drag on the bottom line. And that turnaround happened very quickly. So there's that part of it. That's what's affecting ESPN. What's affecting Sports Illustrated and any number of other digital, you know, entities you can think of is that these companies just can't figure out how to monetize the content. And I want to read you a thread from Andy Glockner, who I worked with at SI. I think you overlapped with probably ESPN. He's now pretty much out of the business. It's depressing. And I'm curious how much you think he's on spot on or not here. These are his observations. The industry has evolved to where profitable stuff is highly polarized. It's either, I'm going to paraphrase this a little. It's either, you know, high, highly paid, you know, personalities or like a Stephen A. Smith or cheapo aggregation rumors. The entire middle where most of the folks who got pink slumped today operated is being vaporized over time. There is no financial market for it. That means people in media who have very little individual value, regardless of how good you are at your job. Those forces make it very hard to continue. Like any career, you want to earn more as you progress. Here, that's often a death sentence. 
Eventually, nearly everyone reaches their value limit, and then they'll be replaced because the industry is in financial collapse. Um, I think the, I, the point in there that I thought was most apt was the very first one. Like, it just seems like, and I keep waiting for this trend to reverse itself, but it hasn't yet. We're going further and further away from journalism into either very, you know, provocative opinion debate shows or why pay somebody to go out and report the news when we can get cheapo uh, right out of college people to aggregate the news? Well, what what's, you know, what's concerning, and I think we see this not just in sports, certainly, is, you know, people who just spout off, they may be 70 percent right, but they could be so off base on the rest of it and a, there's not a lot of there's not there's going to be less people who are actually going to fact check it and to hold it accountable. But the nature of things is you can be wrong and people don't want to hear it. They just want like this political part of it. Um, our colleague Tim Brando was on Twitter pretty active. And and, you know, Tim is Tim is a big Fox News watcher. I think Tim is certainly not left leaning. But he was and he knows the TV business very well. I mean, he has friends who are high up. He's been in it for 40 years about. And he was very adamant that this had nothing to do with politics, um, you know, and, and beat that drum quite a bit and got into it with people. And I think that yet people want to make it that. And I think this is this kind of speaks to what you're talking about, about the people who are the reporters. And, and that's what it and granted you know, we probably have more of a skewed sense of it. We don't know like the three, you know, I, I know Raul Abanez a little bit cause we worked together at Fox, but we don't know a lot of those guys who got let go. Um, Charles Arbuckle was a, you know, he's not, not a reporter. He was a former player. I worked with him at ESPN. He got let go, but, um, that was a telling decision. But I also think again, and I, I think I made this point to you yesterday. I don't think this is right. I don't think ESPN, you know, it, is getting eulogized right now. I think their business model has, has had to change, but they went from 42 college football reporters to 17. 17 is still four times as many as SI has, or more than four times, and it's eight times as many as Fox has, Fox Sports has. So they still have a ton of resources. It's just they had a it's ridiculous more about amount the message. Before. It's more about the message it sends. Like, it may be that if you are a consumer of ESPN.com college football, you don't even necessarily notice the change much this year because you weren't reading 42 articles a day to begin with. It's more about the message it sends about ESPN's priorities going forward and what it means for the rest of the industry. A tweet I sent yesterday, I felt this way for a long time. It was only kind of reinforced yesterday about our industry. The economics are haywire. Demand for sports content has never been higher, yet the content producers have never been more devalued. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you probably value the kind of content that we're talking about. And I would just say, wherever you can find a way to support it, support it. Well, whether that means, you know, subscribing to your local papers online or, or the New York Times or whoever. Um, this podcast, obviously, you hear we have sponsors on here. And they, you know, Blue Apron offers you a code with the Audible in it. Use it um it's a free trial like the more that that we get the more it reinforces that people uh care about this podcast and it helps the company make money um what else what other ideas do you have 
Well, I, again, I think it's one of these things where what we're talking about is, is extra stuff. You know, it's the podcast. It's the, the more ways you can, you can do that. Um, I'm not really sure there is, there's any easy answers to this. Well, or, or, you know, I think, look, if you could go back in time and wave a magic wand, the single biggest mistake this industry made was then when the internet became a thing, when these sports sites launched and you were part of the original, you know, ESPN Mm -hmm. star is that they gave this stuff away for free. You know, if you could go back in time, like, you know, all through history of journalism, People but paid when for I was this at ESPN.com, we weren't giving it all away for free. I mean, I worked at I, much of my last, I don't know, five years at ESPN. I worked for ESPN Insider, which was a subscription-based right. model. So um, I think different places have tried different things. And as you said a few minutes ago, the industry has really struggled to find a way to monetize to monetize content. But it the biggest really has, reason they've struggled is they set a precedent that everybody should be able to get anything they want on the internet for free. You know, that was never, uh, you know, whenever somebody published the first newspaper, they thought to charge for it. The first magazine, they thought to charge for it. Um, TV, cable TV at least, charged for it. Um, you know, for instance, I'll tell you a little story. I go way back to almost the beginning of CNNSI. I wasn't there when they launched it, but not too long after that. Peter King, MMQB, which became an institution, that literally started as... You know, Peter would write a weekly and you know notes column in the magazine, and Steve Robinson, who was the original—I don't remember what his title was exactly—but he was in charge. Told him like, "Hey, I know you have a lot of extra material that doesn't make it into your magazine notebook. Why don't you file it online?" And that's what he did, and it became this institution of a column. But you know, people were paying four ninety-five an issue to read his column in the magazine. So if you could go back in time, you would say, "Wait, we probably shouldn't be giving away the rest of it for free." But too late now, um, but you know, any way you can. For instance, sometimes, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine. Sometimes on Twitter, I'll see people, I'll retweet something or quote tweet something, and they'll say, you know, that has the gist of it in the tweet, and they'll say, thanks, you saved me a click. Just click. <laughs> Is it really taking that much time? Right. The businesses need the click. If you want to keep getting this content, the businesses need the clicks to get the ads so that they can continue to support this content that you want. So. Uh, my la- that's my, my last thing on, on this for you would be five years ago, if I had said, did you ever think there'd be a time where you'd see the end of the road of your of your sports writing, your, you know, sports writing career possibly happening before you'd want it to? How could I mean, I, after the last 24 hours, I don't know how you couldn't think that. Like, I think it's been a very like, uh you know, kind of look into one's own mortality. You know, I feel like we all have an expiration date and we're just kind of hoping to keep it going for as long as possible before that. It's like the game musical chairs, you know, as a little kid, it's just when the music stops, you just better hope you're not near because, and this isn't, shouldn't be the first time this happened, you know, like ESPN had 300 layoffs of really key older, you know, more experienced behind the scenes people a couple of years ago. But just thinking of it, like, a lot of these people, most of these people are people you'd say, man, if I was starting, you know, a place for this, these are people, these are exactly the kind of people I'd hire. I mean, you mentioned Andy Katz. I mean, at one, you know, Andy Katz has pretty much been like the guy in college basketball for much of the last decade. And he's also actually very good on air. I mean, a lot of, you know, sports writers struggle with that transition. He's, he's always, he's been pretty good for a long time as a TV presence. And I think it's just, you know, it's a reminder that, you can still be at the top of your field, and in this field, 
you can be squeezed out, uh, which is, which is, uh, you know, it's a sobering reality for a lot of people. I think it's probably should be a sobering reality for, you know, if you're an 18 year old Stu Mandel aspiring to get into the business. Whatever well, although I would say that there's more opportunity than ever, ironically, for people. Like when I was coming out of college, there was this very much this notion of like, you got to pay your dues. You know, you're, you're going to start out covering high school volleyball before you would ever get the chance to cover anything, you know, of importance. And now I feel like it's gone the other way where because places want to save money, they're happy to give their, you know, like a Big Ten football beat to a 23 or 24 year old and then the people who end up getting cut are the more senior people so um look (laughs) i just this morning as we're recording this the the college football playoff meetings are wrapping up and they've made some announcements some of which are not particularly news we've known that a year and a half from now after the not this season but next season the national championship game is here in my backyard in santa clara and my new goal is i just hope that I will have an opportunity to cover it. But I will, I've covered, what, 18, 15, 18 straight national championship games. Hopefully that streak does not end before the one that's being played in my backyard. How's that? Yeah, it's, it's a jolt. And, I, again, I think, um, you know, one other thing I would say to this, just to finish it off for me, is, you know, the days of, and maybe this, this probably exists in other industries as much, and it has for a while, but the idea of, like, you could be somewhere 25 years and, you know, figure like retire there. I mean, I think it's it's a reality, even if you're somebody who's like 21 and feels like, hey, you know, I aspire to work at ESPN. Not like to me, that's making it. Um, you can get there. You just probably won't stay there for very long. And I think that's a reality that we sh- we all have to have in this business that, um, you know, that it's you may be somewhere for two contracts and then it's time to move on and hopefully you can move on to a place you want to be. I have a feeling there may be people listening at this point who are saying like Crimea River. Uh, mm-hmm. This is hardly the only industry. Where no, and I think we, but I think yeah. we've said that. I mean, I said that at the beginning. I just said that now. Um, again, I think there's a, you know, look, maybe people don't want to hear inside baseball stuff when it comes to the, to the business. It's just, I think uh, on Wednesday with it being the, the layoffs that they were at ESPN was probably one of the more surreal days from an industry standpoint, uh, in sports media, at least. Yeah. And that's why we're talking about it. It's our industry. It's what we know. I do understand that. I mean, there are probably many people listening to us who have gone through the pain of losing their job because of forces beyond their, like you said, because not because they weren't good at their job, they were maybe really good at their job, but for whatever reason, industry forces eliminated their job. And so I just want to make clear, we're not saying like, this is the only industry where that happens. It's just very jolting when it is your industry, when it is your profession, when you see people who you're very close to go through this. Uh, and, and clearly people are, are listening to our podcast because – People know, who are listening to our podcast also consume yeah. ESPN. I, we yeah. know that. So it's affecting them as well. What do you say as long <laughs> as long as we still have jobs? Why don't we answer some emails? Let's do it. So I think Rob Stone still works with us. So let's have him on. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We we appreciate them now more than ever. Um, Travis Trader in St. Louis says, I've been pouring through all the schedules for next year, and every once in a while I come across a matchup that strikes me as odd slash interesting. 
One that really makes me curious is Oklahoma State visiting South Alabama. When you see a Power 5 school visit a Group of 5 team like that, is it strictly because they didn't want to pay for a one-off, or is there something more to it? And does this particular matchup worry you, given it's a road game early in the year for Oklahoma State, and we saw that South Alabama, what South Alabama did to Mississippi State last year? Why don't you answer that last part, and I'll get to the first part. Look, I think Oklahoma State in 2017 is much better positioned to to fend off South Alabama than Mississippi State was in the first game post Dak Prescott. Um, Oklahoma State has way more firepower in offense. Mason Rudolph, a quarterback, arguably the best group of receivers, strong running game. They don't have a great defense, and they lost their best player on defense, uh, Vincent Taylor, in the middle of the defensive line. But I do not see... You know, look, I would have probably said South Alabama had a 5% chance of beating Mississippi State last year. But I, I mean, I don't give them much shot to pull off upsetting, you know, the second time around against against these guys. I think these guys are just too dynamic on offense. And the fact that they will be able to say, you know, all off season or as they get ready for this game, hey, by the way, don't sleep on these guys. These guys are the same ones that went in and beat a SEC team last year. And let's also not forget that Oklahoma State suffered their own upset last year to Central Michigan, although they won't claim it. <laughs> um, I think you're right. I think that, uh, you know, South Alabama, South Alabama caught Mississippi State last year in the early stages of a transition from the best player in school history to a new quarterback, among other things. Um, Oklahoma State is bringing back Mason Rudolph and James Washington. It's a very veteran team. In terms of why they might be going there, I don't know the specifics of why they scheduled Oklahoma, uh, South Alabama. But what you are starting to see, you are starting to see more of this, like Miami playing at Appalachian State last year, um, because it's just become so expensive, these guarantee games, to pay some um, Mac or Sunbelt school to come play in your stadium, that it's, it's, it's almost more favorable to do a two-for-one. Uh, so at least you're offsetting the cost a little bit, right? So instead of paying somebody a million plus dollars to come in 2017 and then paying somebody else a million plus dollars to come in 2018 if you make one trip there to the same school then you offset the cost of one of those trips okay moving on this question is from david crowley big fan of the audible keep up the good work thank you david my question how has the lamar jackson backlash reached this nonsensical point on a recent paul feinbaum twitter poll and the link is Paul's question, which is, would you want Heisman Trophy winner Lamar Jackson to play quarterback for your team next season? Only 52% of the almost 11,000 respondents, only 52% said yes. My quick thought on this is Paul has a huge SEC, you know, that he works for SEC Network. And the SEC team that last saw them, LSU, beat the heck out of Lamar Jackson and his team. And I think that weighs heavily on them. Agree? Yeah, I think that, you know— we build guys up and then we tear them down. And Lamar Jackson, I mean, the last guy I can remember kind of like being on top of the world and then just like the end of the season having just like the worst possible last taste was Troy Smith when he won the Heisman. And that was just one game. Uh, Lamar Jackson had a pretty humbling two or three games there toward the end of the season. Um, I mean, if, if he's not... How many other quarterbacks, let's just do it this way, how many other quarterbacks out there would you rather have as your quarterback than Lamar Jackson? Um, what kind of offense do I run? That kind of offense. 
if I get to run whatever I want, okay, who, and this is kind of a rough, you know, whatever. Um, these are the guys I would say I would rather have a little more Jackson in this going into the year. I would rather have Baker Mayfield. I would rather have Sam Darnold. Um, there's four really good quarterbacks in the, in the pack 12. I'm not sure I would put Josh Rosen over Lamar Jackson at this point in terms of in the college game. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Luke Falk or Jake Browning. Um, I don't know. I would probably take those two. Baker Mayfield, love his playmaking skills, love, love kind of his presence, how he fits the college game. I think he's a better passer. I think he presents a lot of problems for defenses. Um, and I'm going to say Sam Darnold. So I'm going to say two. That's exactly what I was going to say, too. Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold. Not that there aren't other really good quarterbacks out there, but let's not forget, like, just take the passing part out of it entirely. Lamar Jackson as a runner is as lethal as they come. He can just, he's he would just dominate games. Now, it got tougher at the end of the year. I don't know that that was as much on him as it was his offensive line. Like, if you have no protection, then any quarterback you put back there is going to struggle. Now he's in his not, last five games, Stu. He yeah, barely completed. I mean, he completed like fifty-two percent of his passes, eight touchdowns, four picks in the last five games. What? 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 Uh, the one thing I, I remember sticks out. Now, unfortunately, this is anecdotal. I should, you know, like we should have some kind of numbers or or analytics on it. But I felt like his receivers dropped a ton of passes on him, and his offensive line was really underwhelming. So. At, at a lot of times it felt like he was having to shoulder everything on that offense, and eventually maybe he just kind of gave out. So I was at the Clemson game. Clemson goes on to win the national championship. They could not stop him in the second half of that game. You know, it came down to literally one yard where he threw the out pass and the guy didn't quite make it to the first down marker. Um, if they kept, if they convert that first down, it's very possible they go down the field, win the game. Clemson's not going to the national championship. So... You know, I think you got to remember that. I don't. I think he will come out and, and kind of. I would expect him to come out and look a lot more like he did in the first half of the season than the second half. Will it? Will it? Will, is he able to do that over the course of a full season? I don't know. I've seen Baker Mayfield do it over the course of a full season, so I'll take him. And again, Darnold. It's going to depend on what kind of offense. You wouldn't stick Sam Darnold into an offense where the quarterback's expected to run as much as Lamar Jackson did, obviously. But as a passer, it's not even close. So. I think we're in agreement on that one. Very good. Okay. Trace McSorley, would you throw him possibly in there? No. I mean, Lamar Jackson was awesome last year. I mean, there's, like I mentioned, those other three guys in the Pac-12, I think, are, are right there and, and, and special in their own ways. I think Trace is really good. I mean, look, there's probably some Ohio State fans going, hey, JT Barrett, you know, brings all these other things to the table, too. But, you know, again, this guy won the Heisman. It was... I, you saw him light up a team that won the national, ended up winning the national title. So, right. um, and he didn't have Saquon Barkley in the backfield. He didn't have, you know, some of the other skill talent. Like, I mean, I, Baker Mayfield. I mentioned there, Baker Mayfield had two stud running backs and the most productive receiver in college football last year. So, um, I don't know. That's 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 why I go with that. But it's going to be. I'm very curious to see what Bobby Petrino and Lamar Jackson can do to to be Lamar 3.0 this year. And remember, he lost his top three receivers from last year, so that'll be something to watch as well. David Lef David Lafleur from Detroit, how's it going? Great podcast, thank you. 
Butch Davis being at FIU now, do you think he reels in some top talent from the state in that southern Miami area? Also, do you think his motive is to take FIU to a bigger stage and stay put? And if doing so, does he try to get a Power 5 gig again? He's 65, but he's also been in the area since the UNC happenings. I think it's a stretch to think Butch would be able to get another Power 5 job. He would have to turn around what is a pretty mediocre FIU program now um, and turn them around in a hurry. And then for somebody to say, oh, we're going to hire a 67-year-old Butch Davis, I think that's a, that's a big stretch. I mean, I just, I just think the numbers do not work in his behalf. I mean, he made a big run at the Miami job. Obviously, that didn't work out. I'm not sure what other job that somebody would lure at. Now, I've, having said all that, I'm very interested. Like, I think Lane Kiffin getting the FAU job uh, really took the spotlight away from from Butch Davis. And for all the people who talk about how good of a recruiter Lane Kiffin is because of his time at USC and everything, um, Butch Davis is as good a evaluator and recruiter head coach as there's been if you look at what he's done. I mean, the number of guys he had who became first-round picks is ridiculous. So don't underestimate him on that regard. But uh, he didn't inherit as much talent as as Lane did and – I don't know if throwing it to you, Stu, if you had to guess, which coach do you think will have a better chance by year two of winning eight games, Lane Kiffin or Butch Davis? Well, I don't know anything about the rosters they're inheriting, but in terms of competence as a head coach, I have a lot more faith in Butch Davis. And I also think he will he will clean up. I mean, he should do very well in recruiting. And you know this better than anybody, but those great, great Miami recruiting classes he had weren't necessarily a bunch of, I don't know if they did star ratings at that time, but weren't necessarily all the four and five stars. Uh, a lot of those guys were the less heralded South Florida recruits, yes, but man, yep. they, they could play. So obviously it's going to be another level or two down in terms of the talent pool he is able to get at FIU, but I, I, he's going to get some good players there. Yeah, and just in his in his class in the short term, I think he signed twenty guys. Only one was not from the state of state of Florida, and I think almost all those guys were within a half hour of of their campus. I think they hired they hired they recruited a dual threat quarterback from from the Orlando area, but almost everybody else uh, was a ton of Miami kids. I mean, there's a you know a guy here or there from 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 uh, from Palm Beach County, but that's still that's in the South Florida footprint. So we'll see. I, you know, I think it's, I'm very curious to see how that conference plays out because of the coaches in there and, and kind of the, the, the personas of some of these guys. Uh, question from Peter Fumo from Horsham, Horsham PA as journalist, does being honest and critical affect your access to coaches? And if so, how do you balance it? We Good kind of question. talked about this uh, with, Schrager. with Schrager the other day. Uh, we about- asked Schrager his opinion. I don't know if we – we. I mean, Peter weighed in. I felt like you and I kind of like sat on the fence and didn't really – Well, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like that. Peter was explaining to us yeah. how he is right now kind of balancing the, the fact that he's a five-day-a-week you know, morning show co-host where he's giving his opinions. And then on the weekends, he's going and he is calling games, uh, being sideline guy where you do have access to all these people, many of, and some of whom he said he may have criticized on the air. Um, I have never 
had a situation where somebody turned me down for an interview or whatnot because of something critical I wrote about them. How about you? Um, I've had a couple of awkward situations where, uh, I had, I had had one where years ago I had done a very, very big story on, uh, sexual abuse within the UAB program. And that was headed by Watson Brown, who's Mac Brown's brother. And obviously I covered Mac Brown a lot. And I remember once I was there and I want to say UAB was playing a, either a Thursday night game or a Friday night game. And I was in Mac Brown, like in the player lounge where Mac was watching the game, like riveted to it. And it was kind of, I felt like it was definitely awkward. Um, the, the most relevant example I have of this, and I thought of it a lot when Peter was talking just because, you know, we both do sideline is, um, and I, I'm going to bring this up to you, uh, which is about a year ago at this time was the, was the PAC 12, big 12. So that's exactly what meetings. I was thinking of. And it was in Arizona and this was, it's crazy because it feels like it's so much longer ago, but Arp Riles was still the head coach then. And a lot of the the Baylor sexual assault scandal, some of it still had not kind of come out outside the line, still had more stuff that was coming. But you had written a column very critical of Arp Riles. It was one of the first by, by a mainstream college football writer. I'm not saying that, you know, like Texas Monthly and Jessica Luther and, and Deadspin had, had reported on it. And certainly ESPN had done some stuff. But you were somebody who, uh, you know, look, we had we had Arp Riles on our uh, on our signing day um, podcast. Art Riles is somebody who I, who gave me all kinds of access over the years. Um, you know, the, the week, uh, the, the end of the 2014 season was the big, is it going to be Baylor? Is it going to be TCU? Is it going to be Ohio state? Uh, FS one, when we still did these kind of things, sent me to that, to that area for a week. And I did sit downs with both Patterson and Briles. So, you know, he gave me access for that. He did an interview with me for TV on the field right after they clinched the big 12 championship. He didn't have to do that. So that, so a lot of that was in my head in terms of as the scandal was develop was getting worse and worse about, you know, I better be absolutely sure that this is, that, that it is time to weigh in. Cause that's, that was probably one of the only times where I thought like that's going to go away. And it got to the point where, you know, it was just so awful. Of course I had to write what I wrote. But you're right. I this was those meetings, by the way, are next week in Phoenix. So this was almost exactly a year ago. Yeah, for, he was for still my the. Purpose, yeah, go ahead. For my purposes, it hit a different level when, uh, you know, I had I had written about it. I had reported a lot on Baylor, and you know, I remember getting a lot of blowback because I feel like I was one of the first people to say, you know, I'm hearing that there's a really good chance he could actually get get fired for this and lose his job. And I remember saying it on outside the lines and got a lot of, I don't know, blowback, but I just remember getting a lot, you know, a lot of, you know, radio stations that contacted me in the wake of that down in Texas. Uh, well then, you know, week two, I had a Baylor game in Waco and it was really the first real game of the season for Baylor. And when you do, like, as Peter alluded to, when we had him on the podcast the other day, when you, when you are part of the broadcast crew, you, it's like you're going into somebody's house because all their court, you know, their coordinators and their head coach and, you know, some of the players sit down with you and you're kind of behind the scenes on it where you, your act, your access is different than if I was a reporter covering uh, a sports writer covering the game. 
And it was very awkward. Now, do I regret reporting or saying anything I had said in the wake of like feeling like it was, you know, super awkward with the staff? No, because that's also part of my job. Um, but it, you know what? I'll be lying if I didn't say that didn't, you know, that that didn't leave an impression on me too, you know. And um, you know, I I think that I'll say this. I think it makes you way more accountable. Um, I don't think I was one who was heavy on on kind of taking the pot shots or or uh, you know I wouldn't call these hot takes, but kind of throwing the zingers out at somebody or some program. But you know, I know that you know if you if you're there and you actually face the face these schools and face these. You know, not just the coaches, but the the sports information staff and all these these other people. Um, you know, you're more, I, you feel like you're more accountable to that. I mean, I've I've had something where one of the coaches at, at another Big Twelve school was not happy with something I had written. We talked about it a lot. I'm not sure if he was 100 percent thrilled with what I you know with how I had reported it, but I mean, I still stand by it, and you know, we're fine. I mean, we're not great, but we're fine, and that's. I mean, that's just part of the reality of when you, you know, when you're doing different roles that maybe are not, you know, not the same roles that everyone else is doing. Kind of gets back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the podcast and changing emphasis uh, from ESPN, from TV networks, like these shows that are suddenly seeing more and more of where guys sit behind a desk and offer just completely over the top opinions. Those guys don't then have to go to practice or you know a team facility and 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 be face to face with the people they're criticize they're ripping. Uh, if if I rip somebody, if I'm critical of somebody, I better be absolutely sure that it's fair that 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 it's justified. You know that it's not just like a, a, a provocative opinion for the sake of being provocative. Because I do deal with these people on a regular basis. So, and there is a tendency. There is also a tendency. I feel like, and I'm sure this is an excuse, but where you are seeing other people weigh in on something and you just kind of get swept up in it. And, you know, it's almost like, can you top this with your zinger or something? And I think that, you know, I think discipline is important on some of these things. Um, Ed McAvoy, he, Ed McAvoy is a pretty regular uh, mailbag contributor. Hey guys, what's your take on TCU? They return a lot of starters and Gary Patterson typically rebounds after a down year. Should we give him two questions here? He also asks, also, who do you see as this year's Western Michigan? I think we both see USF as this year's Western Michigan. Yeah, I mean, they're a little bit more of a souped-up yeah. version of that, but yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, to TCU, I'm not – I know you were bullish on them last year, and I felt like it kind of came back to bite you. I'm not I'm not fully sold on them. I if Did I you the, do TCU games last year? I did. I did, and they were all over the map. The I did a home game – Late in the year when Oklahoma State beat the heck out of them, and then I did their final – well, their, I'm sorry, their Texas final game at Texas where they, where they you know, basically took it to UT in Austin. It was Charlie Strong's last game. And then the week later, they looked, looked pretty bad, I guess. I forgot who they played. Yeah, last year, TCU was – you're right. I, I, you know, it's one of those things where oftentimes you just – you're high on a team because you have faith in the coach. And uh, last year was a rough one for Gary Patterson. And, and frankly – pretty puzzling now Kenny Hill it turned out was probably just as every bit as inconsistent for TCU as he was when he lost his job at A&M and that doesn't help and they're counting on him again to be the quarterback this year 
but I expected them to be better on defense than they were. That that to me was a puzzle, puzzler. Uh, I'm going to say this, and you tell me if you disagree. I think the two Oklahoma schools will be better. I think West Virginia will be better, and I think Texas will be better. So to me, I think I'm picking them fifth, which is not a great you know run for a team that's you know not in a 16 team you know conference. You think I'm wrong? You were you weren't kidding about it. no. I don't think you're wrong, and you weren't kidding by the way. Their last three games, all of which were on FS1, lost 31 to six to Oklahoma State, beat Texas 31 to nine, lost to Kansas State 30 to six. That's uh doesn't get much more inconsistent than that. Yeah, that Oklahoma State game was just I mean they just got mauled. Oklahoma State, Chris Carson was just like beating <laughs> beating defensive guys up on on at the end of runs. I mean. They were just outclassed in that. And Texas, you know, it was a close game for the first half. And then, you know, TCU just warmed down. Here's the problem here, I think. And we'll see what we get. Kenny Hill last year, 17 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, but got sacked almost 30 times. And if you look how he played down the stretch, I want to say maybe over the last seven games of the year or six or seven games, I think he had like four touchdowns and five picks. You know, they just... They were very limited, and especially considering how productive Trayvon Boykin was, you know, for them, it was such a such a drop off. I mean, I don't know. Kenny Hill, I thought, had some fireworks early on in the first half of the season, but then they just could not really get much going on. When did they that. lose Kamonte Turpin? Because he was a uh, stud, and he got hurt. You know, I think he was in and out of the lineup, though. He played seven games last year. Yeah, I think he was in and out of the lineup. Well, the way I put it, because I, I had a question about um, West Virginia in the mailbag this week, in the written mailbag, and I said, like, the way I look sorry, at the he, big... Just to follow up on that, like, he played in our game, and he may have been less than 100, but he actually played in in a bunch of the second half of the season when Kenny Hill kind of went, gotcha. just kind of ran out of steam, so... I look at Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and West Virginia as being in the top tier going into this season in the Big 12. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if Kansas State cracks that. Mm-hmm. And I think Texas will be a lot better. I think TCU will be better. So, you know, the, the Big 12 took so much criticism last year, and deservedly so. But, you know, you saw a little peak in the bowl season that they could be a lot better this year because I think a lot of those teams uh, were going through tran- big transitions on one side of the ball or the other, and it affected them in non-conference play early. But they got a lot better you know, certainly Oklahoma got better. Oklahoma State got better. West Virginia. I mean, a lot of teams got better over the course of the season. So I think the Big 12 will be a lot tougher this year. Um, let's, in the interest of time, skip down to the very last question, which you can ask. From Evan Messenger. This is Bruce and Stu. I've been listening to the podcast for the past eight months. And really enjoy every episode. Thank you, Evan. We appreciate that. During a recent email show, you answered a message from a listener hearkening back to the age of ties. The first two college games that I attended as a kid growing up in San Diego, lucky you, Evan, both ended up in ties. In 1991, BYU and San Diego State played to a 52-52 tie. The next season, the Aztecs kicked off their year by nodding USC 31-31. I've heard it said that sports are never better than they are when you're nine years old. So part of me actually wishes we still had ties in college football playing for overtime is so boring. And all of which, all of me wishes the gunslinging old 
whack still existed. Keep up the great work, gentlemen. Yeah, I, I agree with him. I, you know, nostalgia is a very powerful force for us in all aspects of our lives. We're always going to feel nostalgic for how things used to be, even if it runs contradictory to common sense. So common sense would tell you, of course, it makes more sense that college football would resolve the ties with overtime. And of course, it makes more sense that college football now has a playoff to determine the national champion rather than having years where there's a split between the AP and the coaches. And yet there is a big part of me that wouldn't mind at all if college football tomorrow reverted to 1995 and there were tie games and there was no BCS or playoff. I mean, that was formative years for me in a very, I very much enjoyed that incarnation of the sport. Uh, I'm going to stop there because you know, for the, I, I follow what Evan is saying, but you know, some other times it just feels like it just feels hollow. And I'm sure there are games where you have that kind of adrenaline rush and you know, look, those are two high scoring shootouts. Would you have felt the same way if it was the, that Alabama LSU game that was played in, uh, 2011? It's impossible to say because we're now conditioned to having a clear winner. Right. So you'd have to put yourself in the mindset of what it was like when it was just accepted that there's going to be ties. I mean, I'll say this. That would have been extremely controversial if the number one and two teams had a tie game in early November. Um, Frankly, it would have been pretty epic, especially if it was then in the context of the BCS where those two teams end up playing each other again anyway. Um, You know what? I kind of would like to have seen that, I think. I think that would have been interesting because at the end of the day, the result didn't matter. You know, Alabama lost, didn't matter. They they won the national championship. So it would have been, people were infuriated enough, as you recall, that there was an all-SEC championship game. Imagine if they were number one and two, played, tied, and stayed number one and two. Okay, as always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And you know, I always end with this kind of pitch, and I'm sure people tune it out at this point. Given what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, the importance of supporting journalism, really, truly, subscribe to The Audible on, it is now actually not iTunes, it is Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and spread help spread the word, leave reviews, tell 10 of your friends. We're not saying this just to like, you know, pump our egos here. It's just any chance you have now to say, you know what, I like what you guys are doing here, helps our industry helps avoid days like Wednesday. We'll see you next time.